And I don't know whose idea it was that I had to preach after that. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Scott has been such a great support and encourager through this, and you have too. I'm thankful to serve this congregation. I look out and I see people who are not only people I serve with, but are friends. And so uh, it's a great joy to begin another year with you. Um, thank you to those who came Monday night. Some of you made the trip. Some of you were telling me about watching it on live stream. Thank you. I, I was holding up pretty well until I, until I looked out and I saw all of you who had come from Centenary and I just kind of lost it. So thank you. It means so much to me that you'd take the better part of a day. And I hear driving back in terrible weather. Um, thank you. Well, today is the first Sunday as an ordained elder. I'm wearing this stole. This isn't mine. I borrowed it from Scott, by the way. Um, but this robe is new, and it is mine, and it was a gift from some of, someone in this congregation. And uh, thank you for that. Um, this, uh, th- but it, this is my first Sunday, so I'm still trying to figure out how to preach with this stole on. So if I like, go under like this, I didn't mean to. But uh, today is also, to the day, the sixth anniversary of my first sermon as a United Methodist pastor. Now, for those of you who didn't grow up in the United Methodist Church, aren't familiar with our practice, you might think that's kind of strange. But I promise you, it it works. Our system works, uh, that uh, that we ordain after a period of discernment, a period of service, to see about that lifelong commitment. But I remember my first sermon was six years ago, and it was on the text that I want to share with you today. So if you'll open your Bibles uh, to 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter, we'll begin at the 34th verse. Uh, This, by the way, is the sermon from six years ago. Yes, this is evidence. I once used to write sermons. Um, I used to use this. I used this that day. Um, But I I thought about preaching the sermon again. I thought that would be a lot easier. But the more I thought about, the more I thought about this first text, the more I thought about that the lesson, I think the most important lesson that I've learned in ministry so far, not just in pastoral ministry, but in following Jesus. So come with me now to 1 Samuel 15. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. 
Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise up and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? O Lord, as the Spirit came mightily upon David, may the Spirit come mightily upon us as your word is opened and preached today, that it might find fertile soil within our hearts. For if your Holy Spirit speaks, nothing else matters. But if your Holy Spirit does not speak, Lord, nothing else matters. And so speak to us, Lord, we pray. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our strength, and through Christ you are our salvation. Amen. I still remember the first sermon like it was yesterday. Now, the first sermon I preached was actually not in the churches to which I was appointed, which I've told you about before. The first sermon I ever preached was the Sunday after annual conference before I left. It was at St. Paul United Methodist Church in Louisville. Now, I know some of you are familiar with St. Paul. It's about twice the size of this church and is one of our great historic churches in Kentucky. And somehow... I was called on to preach that Sunday. I still don't know why, and I still don't know how. I hadn't hardly preached at all, not 20 minutes before a congregation, certainly not before the 650 or so people that were there that day. And they had three services, and I remember making it through the first two, barely, and then I remembered getting to the third one. And in that church, even in June, you came down with the candles and the cross and the choir and the clergy and the big long processional down about a hundred foot long center aisle. And I got up and I sat in the big chair behind the pulpit. And we sang the hymn, we said the creed, we had the prayers. And it was all going well right up until the senior pastor Gary, who was with me on Monday night, was one of the people who laid hands on me. He stood and said, now let us stand for the hymn before the sermon. And I looked out. There were probably 300 or more people in that room. And all of a sudden, I had this unmistakable feeling that I wanted to run for my life. The good news was that they had a pastor on each side of me, which is probably the only reason I'm here today. Because what came over my mind in that moment is I was wearing Gary's borrowed robe and standing in a church that I wasn't appointed to was that sense, that voice that said, Sean, you're a fraud. You don't, this isn't you. What business did I have? And I wanted to run. But then the hymn came. 
And the hymns we're singing this morning, incidentally, are the exact same hymns we sang six years ago. That hymn before the sermon, with that great line that says, Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And in that moment, I learned the most important lesson of ministry, that I may or may not have been a fraud, but it really wasn't about me. This ministry that we have, both pastoral, lay, whatever your ministry is, in the end, it's really not about you. It's really not about your strengths. It's really not about your hard work. This ministry is really all about God. We see that in today's scripture reading. We see that we're, we're, we are entering, the, the book of 1 Samuel is really a book about two people, about Saul and David. Uh, Saul is the first of the kings of Israel. The people of Israel had gotten themselves into some pretty big trouble at the end of the previous period called the age of the period of the judges. In fact, there's a book called Judges. If you want something that you didn't realize was in the Bible, look in the book of Judges. I'm telling you. Uh, there are some scenes you don't, that, that we couldn't make a movie out of. Let's just say that. It had descended into madness. In fact, the last verse of Judges said this. It says, at that time, there was no king in Israel, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. I won't make a comment about how that relates to today. But then we see they got a king. And the first king they had, Saul, he looked just right. He was tall. He was handsome. He was head and shoulders above the rest, and he was from a rich family, which never hurts. But what we find there is yet he did not obey God. And so here in the middle of 1 Samuel, we see that God removes his spirit from Saul and tells that prophet, that man who speaks for God, Samuel, go and anoint a new king. And we begin the story of David. Now, you would be right to notice, is Saul still alive? Yes. Is this awkward then as a result? Yes. In fact, Samuel sees it, doesn't he? He says, um, small problem, God. We've already got a king. He's alive. Turns out, not thrilled when people go against him. And God says, go. And the rest of Samuel is a story about how David comes to power but the writer of Samuel wants you to be very clear because David is introduced almost, you notice David's his name isn't until the very last verse of this reading. He wants you to know that what happened with David, how David came to the throne, was not because David was the most powerful or cunning or wise or whatever. He came because God was with him. And it's almost as though the writer delights in that when you read it. You have this great story, one after another, that the, the brothers come and they pass by the prophet. First, Eliab, 
tall, handsome. Not from a rich family, but we can work with that. And he comes and Samuel, who's like us, says, look, he looks just like what I always imagined a king looks like. And God's like, nope, he's not the one. You know, in fact, some scholars suggest that that's very purposeful to say that one who looks like Saul, God's saying, it's not all what it's cracked up to be. Then another one comes and he's like, no, this is the one. And God's like, no, not him either. Pay attention, Samuel, to what you see. You look the way humans look. You can just see what's outside. You just see what superficially seems to fit the bill, but I look on the heart. And so they go through all seven, and finally, they, do they have any more? And he says, yeah, we got one more. He's out in the field. He's the young one. He's the little one. Surely, you know, he's not that important. And Samuel says, come on, bring him. And it says, as soon as David, the little one that even his own father didn't invite to the meal, immediately God said, he's the one. You see, it couldn't have been by human standards but it was by God's standards. And that's the way it is with you and me. That's the way it is with you and me. You know, God wants to use you and me. Now, I know some of you, you've heard it your whole life, and you're like, yeah, I know. But I suspect if you're like me, when the rubber meets the road you start to back off from that. You say, well, you know, surely there's got to be someone taller, more handsome, more fits the bowl than me, right? So you see it and you're saying, hey, there's got to be someone younger. They'll do the job. There's got to be someone smarter or richer or more connected or what have you. And I find that whenever God calls us to do something, especially something big, we all have a reason why not. I remember when God called me to pastoral ministry. My first response was to give him my list. You know, all the reasons I was the wrong person. You know, I wasn't married. I mean, I, uh, you know, I couldn't remember names. I, you know, all kinds of things I thought were really kind of important. I can't do this. And it was though God said, Sean, he tells me this all the time. You'd think I'd get the hint. It's not about you. And how often when we go, when God, when we're invited to be part of something God is doing, we want to say, hey, there's got to be someone better than me. And God says, no, I didn't choose them I chose you. You know, last week, I love that Pastor Scott talked about vision. He talked about that idea that God given, uh, that, uh, that, that God gives us to, to be part of his work in the world. You know God's at work in the world. I know sometimes it doesn't look like it if you watch the evening news. But God really is at work in the world. And God, for some reason, believes in being at work through people like you and me. And he comes to each one of us and uh, says, I I need you to do something. And you may say, hey, I'm not the right person. But God says, no, you're the one. 
You're the one. I love that God talked to us about vision because he talked about the possibility. You know, he says that, that, that the scriptures tell us that everyone is going to see dreams and visions. That, that everyone who, that, that, that the Holy Spirit that rushed upon David and incidentally in the next verse rushed away from Saul. When you are a born again son of the living God, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Just as it did with David. And we become partners with God in that work of bringing the whole world back to him. I love that, God, that Scott talked about vision because maybe God has given you a vision but you're just like, hey, I don't know if I'm the right one. You know, I've got to do a lot. There's not a lot I have to bring to this. Or my gifts are in this other area but God seems to lead me here. I want to challenge you this morning that maybe to go where God is leading you. You see, God is always delighted in bringing life out of things that were not necessarily what we would have expected. You think about that story of Bethlehem. A thousand years later, God comes to Bethlehem and he comes to a woman named Mary and she gives birth to a child named Jesus who is God in the flesh in a faraway place in a poor family. And then, you know, Jesus, he grows up and he enters into his period of active ministry and we all know that he goes out and he goes to the palaces and gets all the princes to be his disciples, right? Angela's like, I think you're misleading them this morning. He didn't, did he? No, instead he goes out to the streets and picks up the fishermen and the tax collector in his tax collecting booth, the people that society looks down on and says, hey, you guys, Without your formal education and with your, you know, without a high position in the community, uh, I want you to come and we're going to go change the world together. It's funny, isn't it? We ought to laugh because God is at work through unexpected ways. I love when Paul he speaks to the Corinthians. He says, "Guys." God delights in using what is foolish and low and base in this world to confound that which is high and noble. And he says, if you want to see evidence, look at yourself. Not many were noble. Not many of high birth according to this world. Not many wise. But God has chosen to confound the wise through ordinary people like us. You can never be too ordinary to be used by God. You can never have a past too heavy or too deep to be used by God. You can never have a a, a struggle that is too much for God to use you. Because if God has put it on your heart, I believe and I can tell you as a living testimony, God will be faithful to complete it. Because in the end, this ministry is not about you. It's about him. Because from the beginning, humanity has been estranged from God. We've chosen to go our own way. We've chosen to follow our own way. Go back to Genesis 3 and forward. And that is the continual case of humankind But God comes and says, I want to bring you back. I want to bring you back into that relationship of trust and love. I want you to be part of my family once again. Come to me. 
And that's the call for you and I today. Will you trust? Will will you listen to that little or big voice that God has in your life to be part of what God is doing to bring the whole world back to himself? Because you see, when that happens, it may come in unexpected ways to fulfill that deep hurt you see in the world around you. This week we were at annual conference and I, they have a, give us a lot of books and stuff in our package. And one of the things they give you is a kind of, to tell you about is this little thing. It's an annual report of what's called the UMC Food Ministry. It started actually in, in uh, Fort Thomas, Kentucky at the Methodist Church there. And uh, from there has expanded all around southwestern Ohio and northern Kentucky. And as I was flipping through it, a ministry I knew about when I served in northern Kentucky, I was surprised and blown away that one one of the pages was a guy named Tom. Tom was a member of the Jonesville Methodist Church that I served before I came here. Jonesville Methodist Church had 20 people on a good Sunday. It was a little country church. And uh, and, and the people were mostly farmers, small town people. Uh, Tom was in his late 70s when I left. But Tom had always had a heart, and we had talked about what breaks your heart and what breaks God's heart. And for him, going back to his experience serving in Korea during the Korean War, he felt, though, what broke his heart was so many children who didn't have any food to eat, especially during the summer. And so somehow when Tom heard about this, God put in his heart, we're going to feed children here. And Tom went, and he worked with this, and they started at the fairgrounds a central kitchen. That vision was something God put into a a, a man who who is not dissimilar to any of you in this room, a farmer, a, a, a retired telephone company employee. He didn't know, he's not, I don't, I never heard, his wife does all the cooking in their house. He's not a kitchen guy, not a restaurant guy, but God put it in his heart. And somehow God brought it to completion. And I was thrilled to find in here that last year, this started in the middle of 2016, right when I came here. And in 2017, out of that central kitchen in that county of 10,000 people, they served 81,474 meals. Praise the Lord. And that's because one person said yes to what God was doing. One person who sat in the pews just like you do said yes to what God is doing and now children are being fed. Lives are being touched. The kingdom is coming more on earth like it is in heaven. And so my question for you is there's one question. And it's the most important question I can ever ask you. It's the most important question that will determine your purpose and ministry in this world and will, in fact, determine your eternal destiny. Do you trust God? Do do you trust God with your life? Do you trust that God wants to do something with you greater than you can ask or imagine? And when God calls, will you say yes and will you go? When God looks at you like Samuel, like he looked at David and said, rise up and anoint him, for this is the one. Will you? Let's pray.